Good morning. In today's headlines, former President Trump appearing at a Miami courthouse in just a few hours. What he'll do and how the latest court order could affect media coverage. Demonstrators gather in Miami for Trump's arraignment with both supporters and protesters among them. We have more on public sentiment and the city's plan to keep things peaceful. Are there secret tapes of President Biden and his son Hunter? Senator Chuck Grassley says an FBI whistleblower document refers to recordings made by a Ukrainian energy executive. And we look at a photographer capturing the sacred bond between mother and child in the space of her ancestors in Queensland, Australia. Good morning, everybody. Today, I am Evelyn Lee. Today is Tuesday, June 13th, and we have big news topping today's program. Former President Trump is set to appear at a Miami courthouse this afternoon. He's facing federal charges for his handling of classified documents. Joining us now is NTD's Iris Tao on the ground. Iris, what are we expecting to see today? Good morning, Evelyn. So in just a few hours, former President Trump will arrive at this federal courthouse right behind me for his arraignment slated for 3 p.m. Eastern time. And there are a few things that we do need to know here. First, regarding what Trump will do, he's going to arrive here most likely under very heavy security presence. And he's either going to take the underground tunnel to be more low profile or he's going to take the main lobby entrance. But regarding what he will do inside, so once he's inside the courtroom, he's going to have charges against him read to him by a judge, which again would potentially include allegations such as that he re willfully retained classified information on national defense, conspired to obstruct justice and made false statements. But again, yesterday Trump has already made clear that he will not plead guilty. Instead, he's going to enter a not guilty plea, saying that he has done nothing wrong. But regarding what media here, all of us, what we'll be able to catch, that remains a question because a federal judge last night ordered that no media will be able to bring in any electronic devices, including cell phones. The judge basically said that any photographs inside would undermine the massive security arrangements already in place. But of course, outside of the courthouse here, all of us are will, will be trying to get a glimpse of Trump as he arrives and enters the courthouse. And of course, we'll bring the latest updates throughout the day today. Evelyn. Thank you, Iris. Mr. Trump spoke with an American Spanish media based in Florida yesterday. He answered questions about the federal indictment and the upcoming trial. Entity's Jeremy Sandberg has more on that and what one of Trump's lawyers had to say about the case. Trump, in an interview with Americano Media on Monday, agreed with the theory that the federal indictment could be a way to deflect attention away from an alleged bribery scandal involving President Biden and a Ukrainian natural gas firm. They say there's much more to follow, and I also think it was a way of uh, solving the problem he's got with Hunter, where they have so many different things on Hunter, and Hunter is him because they're the same. You know, Hunter's taking in money, and they're taking it in by the busload. Jesse Benal, one of Trump's lawyers on another case, told Joshua Phillip of the Epic Times on the program Crossroads that the federal indictment the Biden administration is pursuing against Trump won't hold up against the law. He says that's because the Espionage Act doesn't apply to sitting and former presidents. The act that applies to presidents and former presidents is the Presidential Records Act. The act that applies to everyone else is the Espionage Act. 
which has different requirements. Banal says the Justice Department is applying a two-tiered system of justice out of animosity against Trump. This is a Department of Justice that has specifically looked past uh, very serious uh, uh, classified document mishandling by Hillary Clinton. They've done the same thing regarding Joe Biden. Um, and they've made it very clear that there is one set of laws that apply uh, to, to Democrats, to people that support the Department of Justice weaponization, and a separate set of laws that apply to everyone else. Banal also predicted the case will see motions to dismiss for prosecutorial misconduct based off his past experience with DOJ special counsel Jack Smith. He cited examples of violations of attorney-client privilege and Smith's appeal for a speedy trial. We know that from the, uh, the indictment that Jack Smith abused um, an allegation of, uh, of the crime fraud exception to the attorney-client privilege by uh, taking instances when Donald Trump was very clearly asking for legal advice. And uh, instead of protecting the attorney-client privilege, he forced the attorneys to turn over their communications with the client. That's not only just a violation of privilege, that's a, a violation of the Sixth Amendment to the United States Constitution. Trump claims to have declassified the documents he's being charged over while in office and says he was negotiating with the National Archives prior to the raid at Mar-a-Lago. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. At the same time, demonstrators are gathering in Miami for Trump's arraignment today. Both supporters and protesters are feeling the need to express themselves. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg also has more on the public sentiment and the city's plan to keep things peaceful. Trump supporters and critics alike gathered at Doral Hotel on Monday where the former president was staying ahead of his federal court appearance. Well, we're losing our values. I think he's being indicted on all the wrong reasons. He basically gave up the paperwork. Mm -hmm. They call him Teflon Don for a reason. We know what this con artist from New York has gotten away with. Enough is enough. He needs to pay. Some feel it is their duty to give back to the former president for what he's done for them by showing solidarity and support. So I think that is our obligation. He stood for us. He sacrificed so much money for us. He sacrificed his good life. He sacrificed his popularity for our well-being. And I think it's our responsibility to show up and sacrifice for him when he's under this persecution. Senator Rick Scott said Monday the DOJ and FBI have both been infected by politics and partisanship and that the justice system is in danger of losing public trust. This isn't about Republicans and Democrats. No one is above the law, period. But the rule of law requires equal justice under the law. It has gone missing under the Biden administration. Scott says all Americans, even those that don't like Trump, should be against politicizing the justice system. If they want to indict President Trump, then they need to explain why they didn't indict Hillary Clinton. She destroyed evidence when she had a subpoena. Miami's police chief says preparations have been underway to ensure the city is safe and secure since the arraignment was announced. We're bringing enough resources to handle crowd anywhere from 5,000 to 50,000. We don't expect any issues. The chief says the department means to maintain peace and order while at the same time protecting people's First Amendment rights. Make no mistake about it, we're taking this, uh, this event extremely serious. We know that there is a potential of things... Uh, taking a turn for the worst, but that's not the Miami way. Miami Mayor Francis Suarez echoed that sentiment and encouraged people to demonstrate peacefully. We obviously 
believe in the Constitution and believe that people should have the right to express themselves. Um, but we also believe in law and order. And we know that uh, and we hope that tomorrow will be peaceful. Trump has asked his supporters protesting against his indictment to do so peacefully. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. We will have special live coverage of Trump's arraignment in Miami, Florida today. That starts at 2 p.m. Eastern time. You can watch on cable or find it on our website at ntd.com. Senator Chuck Grassley made some incriminating remarks regarding President Biden and his son Hunter yesterday. NTD's Daniel Monahan has more on alleged secret audio recordings. Senator Grassley said an executive from the Ukrainian company Burisma kept audio recordings of his conversations with them. The executive allegedly bribed the president and his son. The foreign national possesses 15 audio recordings of phone calls between him and Hunter Biden. Grassley says the executive also has two audio recordings of phone calls between him and then-Vice President Joe Biden. These recordings were allegedly kept as a sort of insurance policy for the foreign national in case that he got into a tight spot. Grassley says he got the information from the FBI-generated 1023 document which contains a whistleblower's testimony. A redacted version of that report was recently made available to Congress for reading, but Grassley stated he read the unredacted version which has the information about the secret recordings. Congress owes, owes it to the American people and the brave and heroic whistleblowers to continue to fight for transparency in this matter. The senator is calling for the unclassified document to be made public without redactions for the American people to see. In related news, the House Oversight Committee has issued a subpoena to a Hunter Biden business partner named Devin Archer. The committee is especially interested in Archer's involvement in the Biden family's international business deals. That includes business in countries like China, Russia and Ukraine. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Up next, the founders of the Marriage Restoration Project told us what the most common problems in marriage are and how to fix them. And sticking with the theme of marriage, one woman says she's found happiness leaving her career and becoming a housewife. She says she and her husband always put each other first. That's after the break. Welcome back. That famous statistic that almost half of all marriages end in divorce is sadly true, but when it comes to second and third marriages, they fail at much higher rates. I spoke to Rabbi Shlomo Slatkin and his wife, Rivka Slatkin. They are counselors and founders of the Marriage Restoration Project. I asked them what the most common issues are among couples and how to fix them. Watch. Communication is really I would say the main issue that everybody has, because nobody's coming to counseling if they know how to communicate, because if they know how to communicate, they wouldn't have any issues. But the truth is that communication is really more of a symptom of the, of the greater issue, which is the lack of feeling safe connection, because communication is how we interact with someone else, whether it's through word or through nonverbal, that's how we express ourselves to someone else. So when that's not safe, then, and that's not going well, then that means you're not feeling, it's a symptom of not feeling safe with your partner. So we find that by learning how to create a safe process through which couples can interact with each other, that puts them in a safer, more connected place, which enables them to deal with 
all of the multitude of issues that come up in relationships. And that's what we learned how to do actually ourselves when we started counseling for our own marriage almost 22 years ago. And that's what Imago Therapy showed us how to do, which was how to have a safe conversation. I saw that you described three stages of marriage. Um, can you go over them really quick with the challenges and um, the challenges that come with those three stages? Maybe Rifka, this one is for you. Sure. So. The first stage is what we call romantic love. So that's when you meet someone, you fall in love, you can't stop thinking about them, can't stop talking to them, you're on the phone for hours, texting, whatnot, looking into each other's eyes. It's kind of like when all those cliches from the movies, but on average science studies shows that it lasts zero to six months. Then couples move into the second stage of relationships, which is called the power struggle. And that is where most couples are. Now, in this stage, couples either decide to stick it out and kind of just have like a mediocre marriage, maybe an invisible divorce where they're kind of like roommates and not soulmates, or they actually decide to get divorced in this stage. So that's the power struggle. And then what most people also don't realize is there's a third stage. So a lot of times people get stuck in the power struggle and they think, gosh, I made a mistake. Like we should just this is not who I thought I married. And that's when a lot of people decide to call it quits. But really, there's a third and final stage called real love or the conscious marriage. And if people can stick it out through the power struggle and learn how to make it through past it, they can get to the third and final stage. But the, what the conscious marriage does and what we, the work we do with couples is helping them become aware, why is this bothering me in the power struggle so much? Is it just a coincidence I married this person who you know, doesn't listen to me or is not patient, or is there something deeper there? And when we become aware that that's actually a trigger, it's really 10% what my spouse is doing to me and 90% my own issues from childhood, from the past that I'm bringing to the table, then when we become conscious, your spouse is no longer the villain. And then your spouse also no longer feels threatened and criticized. They can actually step up and meet your needs. We view the power struggle, it's inevitable, to be expected. And the romantic stage is not, rea is not reality. The romantic stage was only to get you in the door because if couples knew what they were getting into in the power struggle, n nobody would get married. So you need to have that anesthesia to kind of get you in the door to commit to this person before you start seeing all of their... Uh, you know, the ugly ugliness. Yeah. Harville Hendricks, who's the founder of Imago Therapy, calls it calls romantic love nature's anesthesia. Exactly. It numbs your senses because you just feel so good with all these wonderful chemicals. Mm, that's so interesting. Nature's anesthesia. All right. Thank you so much, Rabbi Shlomo and Rivka Slatkin. I think that was very insightful and valuable tips. Thank you so much. Thank oh, you're you. You're welcome. Thank you. Our next story is a blast from the past. It feels like something right out of the 1950s. We hear about a trad wife or traditional wife who found happiness in an old-fashioned marriage. She says she made the decision to be the perfect housewife and care for her husband because it's her purpose. Check it out. What makes a fulfilling marriage? Well, for Esty Williams of Richmond, Virginia, traditional gender role. So the husband is the provider and he takes care of the family financially. And the wife, she's the homemaker, and she takes care of the cooking, cleaning. And um, we don't have children yet, but we will soon. And then obviously that will be a big part of my day. 
Williams used to attend college, pursuing a career in meteorology, but she says that left her unhappy. So she dropped out and met Connor, her future husband. She says they always put each other before themselves. What's the attraction? Well, I do believe that men are naturally drawn to more feminine, nurturing women, and that is a big that is a big role to accept as a woman and being a homemaker and a traditional wife, you you embrace that natural femininity. The trad wife life, it's more than an iconic 1950s hairstyle. For Esty, there are rules, like no friends of the opposite sex. Yes, we have always done that because I, I personally don't feel the need to have like a male friend that unless it's his friend and we're all friends together, but there would be no reason for me to see that person without my husband. But it's a it's a sign of respect, mutual respect, just like he wouldn't have female friends. They always go to the gym together because sometimes a wedding ring isn't enough to keep other men from making advances. And on big superfluous purchases, he always has the final say. He does the yard work and she the housework. I get the freedom to stay home and cook and clean and take care of my family and I have the I have the flexibility to incorporate my hobbies, my interests during the day as well as um, make sure that my husband can be taken care of in terms of like doing the laundry, cooking the foods all from scratch. That's a Her advice to other women, take dating seriously and pay attention because your partner may very well carry those habits into marriage. Kevin Hogan, NTD News. Over to Australia now, where a First Nation photographer uses her skills to capture sacred moments. The artist wants to capture the spiritual link between mother and child by immortalizing them through photography, and she does it in the beautiful and serene landscape of her ancestral land. Let's take a look. Photographer Melissa Mills uses a traditional greeting to welcome families to her land in central Queensland. Located about 400 miles northwest of Brisbane, Carnarvon Gorge is a place of major cultural importance. We were always were told it has a strong a female story that surrounds it. It's very a matriarchal space. Melissa uses her photography to capture the sacred spiritual bond between mothers and their children by inviting them to share the sacred space of her ancestors. When they're actually brought out into the world, they're still connected to us via the umbilical cord. That cord is always an invisible cord that will always connect that child back to that mother. Melissa's project, Imprints, was born out of inspiration from years of speaking to the elders. Mother Luanne Fleming and her daughter Ashley traveled 250 miles to be photographed by Melissa. It's sacred, isn't it? It's um, what a privilege, what an honor to be asked to do it. Her daughter Ashley says she cherishes the opportunity to spend time with her mum. It was nice to do something with my mum for once, kind of. It's like we're always usually busy or our schedules don't really, you know, line up. And for us to have like photos because we rarely have pictures together, it's quite nice. Non-Indigenous participants also get the chance to learn about the historical significance of the area. Cost MNS, NTD News. Still to come, gold fever is back in California to celebrate a small town reenacted and revived the pioneer life from the Golden State's early days.
And a town in France holds one of the biggest medieval festivals in Europe, offering visitors a taste of life in the Middle Ages. We have that story after the break. Good to have you back. This winter's abundant rain has revived gold fever in Northern California. There, locals reenact the pioneer life during the gold rush as visitors flock to town. Entities joined in on the fun and heard more from the locals. The towns of Placerville and Paloma, California have a rich history for gold. This year's storm has people flocking to gold towns, hoping to strike it rich. Knowing this, locals hosted events to show newcomers what life during the gold rush was like. There's a little bit of gold with quartz. Some of it came out of the river, some of it came out of the hillside. It's just a lot of people forgot about the gold, you know, and it's still right underneath us. Albert Falzel is the owner of Placerville Hardware, which claims to be the oldest hardware store west of the Mississippi. His family has owned the store for 70 years, and he is the third generation. This building was established in 1852 during the gold rush. They needed supplies, so they'd come right up here to the hardware store and buy all their metal gold pans, their buckets. They'd buy, you know, their sluice boxes, their dynamite. We're just marshals making sure that the city is safe while the wagon train comes through. The wagon trains would come through uh, after the 1840s, and the gold rush that started this town happened in 1848. In 1849, everybody started coming through, and by the middle of 1850s, this was a booming town, so people would be coming through here. Didn't expect the special event here in Placerville. It was a pleasant surprise to be here for, for these, one of its Wild West connection here. Marshall Gold Discovery State Park is also presenting a living history program on the second Saturday of each month. About 300 yards downstream was the original mill site of the Marshall Sawmill, which in 1848 James Marshall found gold in the tail race of the mill when it was under construction. It's the sawmill they built to mill lumber that never actually milled lumber. It's for the 175th anniversary since gold was discovered in California. The Hands-On History Day features many historical interpreters that teaches people how to pan for gold using 1850s-type equipment. When you get heavy water flows and you start seeing stuff that's, you know, 100, 200 pounds moving around the beach, that's when you know you've got a good, good gold year or a good, well, what you're really getting is a good turnover year. So you get a replenishment of gold in the river channel. It's not that it's all, not always there. It's just that it takes the large water movement to get it exposed again. So it makes it accessible to people with pick and pan. We learned on how to use a rocker and how there's like two to three miners using it all at once. You get to learn about what supplies you use and what they're called. Like up there, there's another stand where you can learn about horn spoons and scales and all sorts of different things about gold panning. Phillips said one has to be patient to see results. He also says some of the purest is from California. It's still wonderful that we've got wine country, we've got rafting, we've got Goldbug Park. Every little business down here is a, a small business still, and so, you know, we all support each other, and uh, it's just a really great community to live in. They say they just want to share the excitement with others and hope to preserve the history for the future generations. 
We have some more history for you today because the Middle Ages haven't gone out of style, at least not for the 100,000 people who paid a visit to a medieval city near Paris over the weekend. They had the opportunity to explore medieval dance, crafts and clothing. And today's France correspondent David Vives takes us there. In everyday life, Martin Grave is an IT project manager. But every once in a while, another side of him shows up, a medieval knight of the Crusades. The 13th century was France's golden age because we had great kings like Philip Augustus and Saint Louis. We're right in the middle of the Crusades period, too. I've been fascinated by history ever since I was a kid. Since 1984, the fortified medieval town of Provence has held one of the biggest medieval festivals in Europe. And like Grave, Around 105,000 visitors came to Provence over the weekend to get a taste of Europe in the Middle Ages. The festival features full-scale historical reenactments of the Champagne fairs and camps and features medieval craftspeople, builders and dancers. And the music can be a thousand years old, but it's still very effective at getting people to dance. What we love is, of course, performing the songs together with friendly musicians. And the interaction with the audience is always great. We try to put a smile on people's faces and bring them happiness. There are many craftspeople displaying products from the old days, art objects, fabrics, spices, jewelry, costumes and musical instruments. Some are passionate and practice their skills in associations, others make a living from their crafts. Blacksmithing is a passion. There's no way to explain it. It comes from the inside. It's like alchemy, using the elements, water, earth and fire. You start working on the metal, you transform it into something else. It's like someone who's writing, who starts with a blank page. This arrow here will be used to tear the sails of the boats, to slow them down and immobilize them. Here you have the knuckle cutter. This is an arrowhead used to stop cavalry. Here's the incendiary arrowhead. It's used to set fire to anything that can burn. And another possible use was as a poison, to poison a well. Provence and its fortifications were built during the 9th century, and the city was designated a UNESCO World Heritage Site in 2001. David Vives, NTD News, Paris. Incredible what history and tradition has to offer. We're wrapping up today's program right here. You can write us at goodmorning at ntd.com if you have any feedback or thoughts that you would like to share with us, of course. That's it for today. Have a great day. Thanks for watching. I'm Evelyn Lee.